Our second reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. Jesus also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, Who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The word of the Lord. So we are continuing in the Gospel of Luke, and last week we had a look at the parable of the prodigal son. And I don't know about you, but it reminded me how complicated or how rich, perhaps is a better word, the parables, the stories that Jesus told people are. That actually, if you look deeply into the stories that Jesus told, they're not simplistic. They're intended almost, I think, to be like the shock jocks of Scripture. Do you know what a shock jock is? You don't know what a shock jock is? How old are you? Come on. (laughs) Radio hosts who say shocking things to kind of disturb and make you listen. The parables are intended to make you listen deeply, not to take things at face value. And we saw last Sunday in the prodigal, uh, the story of the prodigal son. On one level, you could just take it as a morality tale. A wasteful younger son takes his father's wealth, spends it, wastes it, hits rock bottom, realizes his terrible mistake, repents, and goes home like a good boy. And yes, that is in the story, but we saw that actually, look a little deeper, look a little harder, 
And the parable of the prodigal son is about the father's generosity that is shocking, at least to the audience of Jesus' time. The radical, almost prodigal nature of the father's generosity. And then the older son who cannot accept the father's generosity and rebukes publicly the father. In an honor shame culture, that would be a shocking thing to do. The elder son says, Dad, you can't do that kind of thing. And we recognize that maybe there is a little bit of the older son in a lot of us where we look and say, Hmm, is God really that generous? We're supposed to see ourselves and discover ourselves in the parables. It's about, or they are about, revealing the real shape of our hearts. And I wonder what shape your heart is in this morning. As you read the parable, well, it's not really a parable. It's kind of one of those complex, uh, is it a story? Did this really happen? Is it both? The story of Jonah, which will be very familiar to most of you. And you remember that story, the rather strange story. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is an enemy city to Israel. Go and tell that city to repent, because if it doesn't repent, disaster is going to come. Jonah, in good, um, uh, you know, God-fearing fashion, says, nope, I'm not doing that and runs away, and really Jonah is a representation of Israel, the people of God. And God is kind of reminding Israel, you're supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, that's your job, and you're running away from it. And the story goes on, and Jonah gets swallowed by a whale, which is uncomfortable, and eventually he decides, okay, I'll go and do what God has told me to do. He goes, he goes to the city and says, repent, and extraordinarily, the city does. And Jonah is furious. He's angry. I thought this might happen. And in that moment, you see the state or the shape of Jonah's heart. He wanted them to be crushed. So these stories, these parables, are supposed to reveal to us and show us, particularly if we are inside the people of God. If we would consider ourselves now as the people of God, as Christians, they're supposed to show us who we really are. We've moved from Luke 15, the parables of lostness, now into Luke 16, and we're moving from the stories of the outsiders, outsiders, the lost and found, to the insiders and what it's like to live inside the kingdom of God. And we're going to look this morning at a rather strange parable of a dishonest servant who is commended by his master, apparently, for his dishonesty. And as you know, in the parables, the master or the father figure is a kind of godlike figure. Is God saying to the, to the dishonest servant, well done for being dishonest? Surely not. So we're going to have a look at that. And what I want to suggest to you, that really what this parable about is about that radical shift that is supposed to happen over time in the shape of our hearts as we enter into the kingdom. Would you pray with me? And then we'll have a look at this text. Father God, this morning, as we listen to this story of the dishonest manager, who is commended by his master, would you speak to us by your spirit, through your word, and reveal to us the shape of our hearts, wherever we are this morning. A bit bored, not sure we want to be here, excited, full of God, wondering where God is. 
Would you speak to us and show us the shape of our hearts? And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So this odd story starts like this. He, Jesus, if we can bring that text up, great. He, Jesus, said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. The manager, the word for manager there is the economos. So he's not just managing the wealth. He would have had a huge responsibility. He would have been responsible for investing the master's money, looking after it, taking care of the household. He's a responsible guy. But he had a manager and charges, we never find out who says it, but somebody comes to the master and charges were brought against this manager that this man was wasting his possessions. So this manager is a bit of a waster. And there is an interesting uh, textual link back to the parable that just preceded this because the word waster is the same in the Greek as the word that is used for the younger son. So it should sort of prick our ears up and say, gosh, there's a a similarity, there's something uh, going on here. So this man is a waster, and his master doesn't wait for his excuses, but reads him the riot act. So the master called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in your account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. He's basically saying, here is your termination notice. You're fired. You've had a period of time in which you you will have a period of time where you can put your uh, account in order, and then you are off. Anybody here ever been fired? You don't have to put your hand up. It's all right. I managed to get myself fired twice from the same job. I bet none of you can say that. I I worked, uh, I trained as an architect, surprisingly, and I went to my first, one of my first jobs was working in a fashionable design agency. I didn't know, in London, I didn't know what I was doing, and they figured out I didn't know what I was doing. They fired me. I persuaded them to take me back on, and then they fired me again. But anyway, it wasn't very pleasant, but I was young, so it was okay. But this man, this manager, it seems, is not in the first flush of youth, because the manager says to himself, what am I going to do? Now I've lost my job. Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. I can't take on some manual labor, and I'm ashamed to beg. And it sounds like this man doesn't have many friends. It's not like he's saying, oh, I'll just go to old so-and-so down the road, and I'll see if he's got a job. Sounds like he might have made a lot of enemies. So this waster of a manager then has this big idea. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to take some of the master's money, not my own, but the master's money, and I'm going to use it to make myself some friends so that when I'm out on the street, I can go to them and they might help me. I have decided what to do says the manager, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? What do you owe my master? And the man said, a hundred measures of oil. So the manager says to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. In other words, cut your debt in half. Oh, thank you very much. I will. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe him? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. 
Thank you very much. I think I will. It's a bit scandalous because this waster is essentially, who has squandered his master's possessions already, is now basically defrauding his master in order to curry favor with the master's debtors so they'll look after him once he's out. And the big question that this story then stirs up and should stir up in the audience is, well, how then will the master react? What would you do? And this is where the parable becomes shocking, complicated, very difficult to understand. So much so that some commentators say this parable could not possibly really be one of Jesus' parables. It might have snuck in there somehow by mistake or something. Because what happens next just does not make logical sense. Here's what happens. This master whose funds have been wasted, who has now been defrauded, commended the dishonest manager. Well done. Well done. He commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And then the story goes on, as Jesus says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Those who are outside sometimes get it more right than those who are inside. So the question is that commentators have wrestled with throughout the ages. Is God really saying or commending dishonesty? Is that what is happening? That is very, very difficult to sustain. Nowhere else in the scriptures does God ever say, hey, a little bit of dishonesty is okay as long as it points to the right outcome. Nowhere. There is no such thing in the Christian scriptures as a holy lie, something that you could do in order for some good and noble purpose, a little bit of dishonesty on the way or a little bit of immorality on the way, that's okay because the outcome is right. That never happens, not once. As far as I'm aware, you can correct me. In the scriptures, the ends never justify the means. It's the other way around. We're supposed to concentrate on the means as much as we can and trust, ultimately, the ends to God. So what are we supposed to make of it? All sorts of ideas have come up around this. Some say, as I said, it, the, this isn't, really isn't one of Jesus' parables. He couldn't make a story up like this. Others say, well, maybe it's a kind of reverse manager-servant story to the other manager-servant story in the Scriptures. There's another story of a manager who forgives. Do you remember that one? He forgives his servant's debts. Any of you read the scriptures ever? I'm just, just wondering. Okay. The manager forgives the servant's debts. The, the servant has his own debtors, and he goes out and doesn't forgive them. Do you remember that one? And the manager's furious. It's like, you know, and it's kind of, as you are forgiven, so you should forgive. Maybe this is the other way around, that as the servant forgives the debt, so the master will then forgive him. Possibly. Possibly. Some even find in the dishonest manager a Christ figure. Can you imagine Forgiving the debts of what is owed to the master. Possibly, possibly, I don't know. But as I read it, and as I read it in the sort of broader narrative of Luke, I wondered if Luke puts this parable in here, and you know that the Gospels are not made up by the authors, but they are arranged 
by the authors. The authors of the gospel put the material in order. They're not making the stories up, but they do put it in order. So maybe Luke puts it in this order because he's seeing something of a younger, older brother echo going on here. As we move from Luke 15 and the stories of lostness to Luke 16, stories of the kingdom, the question being posed for us as an audience is, what is it like to be inside the kingdom, and what is it like to have the radical inclusion in that kingdom of the most unlikely people? The dishonest manager. Because the kingdom is an absolute reversal and turning upside down of all our values. So the younger man, uh, the manager is a kind of almost a younger brother figure. He's dishonest, but through circumstance, and not because he's a good fellow, but actually he's just trying to save himself. But still, he starts to do kingdom-like things. He forgives debt. He starts investing money in people, and he starts learning the values, or the true value, of friendship. So his values are beginning to be disturbed, and we're going to see in a moment that Luke, then uh, the, in the arrangement of the materials, he puts this against the Pharisees, the Pharisees who are the insiders who should have kingdom-shaped hearts, but actually turn out to love money and to suffer from spiritual pride. They justify themselves. Because what comes next in this parable is a series of kingdomy statements. After the story of the dishonest manager, you get some kingdomy Jesus statements. They're a bit random, frankly. And again, commentators struggle. Did Luke just kind of find these bits lying around the sort of editing room floor and sort of stuff them in because he didn't know where else to put them? So I'm not going to go through all of them, but I'm going to look at a couple of them very quickly. Because I think what we're seeing here is Jesus is beginning to talk about the values of the kingdom, the shape of the hearts that we should have as those inside, if that's what you are this morning, or where you feel yourself to be. What kind of heart, what shape of heart is Jesus trying to form in us? So this is how uh, the text goes on. Jesus says, he's now speaking to his audience, he's speaking to us, and I tell you, make friends. Christ Church Vienna, Matt, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. What? And actually, the phrase in some translations is even more glorious, unrighteous mammon. Whoa, that sounds exciting. What is unrighteous mammon? Make friends for yourself so that when, uh, by means of unrighteous uh, wealth, so when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Gosh. Unrighteous mammon, a little bit of a difficult phrase. Mammon does just mean wealth. That's why it's translated here as wealth. But money in the scriptures is neither good nor bad. It's kind of neutral, really. Love of money is something different. So perhaps it means, unrighteous wealth means un simply uh, possessions, everything that you have that comes from this world. It's kind of worldly wealth. Everything you've got, everything you possess, your Game Boys. Do you have Game Boys? No, that's a little bit out of date. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no. Xbox. I know. Everything you have that comes out of this world that is fundamentally not righteous, what are you supposed to do with it? Make friends. 
That is a high kingdom value. Don't be so concerned about using your wealth to invest in the stock market because it's riding high and there's nothing wrong with doing that. Or buying a bigger house. Use what you have to build friendships. The world says money makes you wealthy. The kingdom of God says your friendships make you wealthy. You're starting to see a complete reversal of values. And then if you skip on a little bit further, Jesus makes another well-known kingdomy statement. No servant, he says, can serve two masters. You can't serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't do it. You're going to have to choose. You can't make your master, uh, money your master in the kingdom. In fact, from a kingdom point of view, it's not your money anyway. The whole point of these stories is that these managers, they're stewards. It's not theirs, really. They get to use it and invest it, but it's not their money. This man is an economos. He's a steward. So what are you doing with the things that you have been given or even earned What are you doing with the things, that worldly wealth that you've been given to steward? What are you doing with it? That's the question. Mark Zuckerberg. Interesting man. Facebook, yes? We've got a nice Facebook logo we could have at this point, just to make the point. Co-founder of the world's largest social media business, currently valued, I think, at about 500 billion. Really? Wow. But there's been a a recent development, quite a significant development. In the uh, Facebook news feed, please tell me, am I getting that terminology right? I do not use Facebook. News feed, yeah, the news feed, got good. Uh, The news feed, he's going to shift it. He's going to make quite a significant change in the news feed because he feels that Facebook is becoming too much about selling stuff to us. And selling stuff would include politics or any other kind of idea or thing that people would like to influence us with. So he's going to shift the news feed more towards family and friends. And it has wiped so far $3.9 billion off the value of Facebook. That's a little bit of cash. Why? I don't know. I don't know Mark Zuckerberg, but he did. I picked up a couple of things as I've been reading this story. He's got two. Uh, he's got a couple of kids now, and he said, I, "I don't want my kids to grow up, and their father is the creator of this monster. I, I want it to be a good thing." So something about the, having children has made this shift in his values. And he's prepared to use what he has to invest, actually, in rather kingdom-like things. Friends and family. So in this parable, and we're drawing to a close now, could it be that this low-life, dishonest waster, not for good reasons, 
is actually stumbling into kingdom-like behavior and values. Whereas, and this is how this part of the text finishes, Jesus is going to point to the Pharisees, who are the ultimate insiders, people of the kingdom, who do not have, however, kingdom-shaped hearts. This is how it goes. The Pharisees, it says, who were lovers of money. You can't love God and money. The Pharisees love money. Heard all these things that Jesus was saying, and they ridiculed him. Oh, Jesus, with your silly stories. We don't even understand what they're about. Ridiculous. They ridiculed him, and Jesus said to him, them, to them, to the Pharisees, you are those who justify yourselves. You are spiritually proud. You justify yourselves before men. But God knows the shape of your heart. He knows what your heart is really like. Just as God knew Jonah's heart or the elder son's, and God sees that the Pharisees are a long way from the shape of a kingdom heart. God knows your hearts. You're a long way from God. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Yikes. An abomination. Doesn't sound good to me. I don't think it's saying money is terrible. I don't think it's saying, uh, you know, things of this world are terrible. I think what it's saying is when we exalt them, that's an abomination. The kingdom of God is an absolute reversal of the values of this world. The reality is your heart is being shaped every day by the world around you. You may not like it. Things like Facebook, I'm not having a go at Facebook. If I ever send you a birthday message, it's because I've seen it on Facebook. Facebook pings me and tells me it's Johnny's birthday and I'll send him a happy birthday. I love Facebook. But Facebook is worth $500 billion for a very simple reason. The people who invest in it think it can influence you. The shape of your heart, what you desire, what you want, it's called advertising. That's what it's doing. And they've developed these extraordinary algorithms that they're actually no longer in control of, by the way, to sell you stuff. So that when you go on and you click on something, it then shows you other stuff like that, and always deeper and more. You're being shaped. But God is just as interested in the shape of your heart as Facebook. In fact, way more so. As insiders, we're not talking about those outside, we're talking about those inside us. He is interested in shaping and reshaping your heart. And as far as I can make out, that is not a neat process. It's not likely to happen predominantly in Sunday school. It just isn't. It's going to happen in the mess of life. It's not a neat religious process. It's a bit weird, like the story of the dishonest manager, perhaps. But who are we to say what should be commended and what should not be from God's perspective? What is God seeing in the manager that we can't see? The shift of a heart. We're not to judge that. That's not our job. This man seems to be learning to forgive debts, using everything he has to invest in people and making friends, and perhaps, perhaps, beginning in some way, stumbling towards loving God more than money. 
God knows your hearts. He knows the shape of your hearts this morning, wherever you feel you are, where you need a well done that nobody else is ever going to give to you because it doesn't look particularly neat. And the invitation to us, the only way that we will stop that happening is to behave, frankly, like Pharisees, to justify ourselves, to be spiritually proud, to say we've got it all together, and to insist on valuing things the wrong way round. I live in London. My mother's house is on a hill. You can look out over London. And you look out, there are these big buildings pointing up. Once upon a time, a hundred years ago, those would all have been churches. They're now all banks, without fail. And that's true of most European cities. Don't be spiritually proud. Allow God to do his work. Allow God to do his work in other people. Don't you judge them. Who knows what God is doing in the heart of a human being? God is at work in shaping our hearts to receive his kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, this morning as we go on in our worship, this time when we have set aside time to allow our hearts to be shaped by you, by your word, by your spirit, as we come to take communion. Lord, don't let us miss this short opportunity we have to allow you to speak to us, to ask heart-level questions. Thank you, Lord, that you love us enough not to leave us where we are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.